And now to introduce him, um, our good friend, Dr. Lenny Mankin is here. He is a practicing internist and associate program director for the internal medicine residency at Legacy. Dr. Mankin, originally from Los Angeles, earned his medical degree at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, then returned to California to do internal medicine residency at UCLA, where he also served as chief resident and went on to associate professor of medicine. Since coming to Portland, Dr. Mencken has mostly practiced internal medicine uh, in the outpatient setting. He previously taught at OHSU uh, and still teaches students from there and has been an associate program director at Legacy since 2007. His academic interests include many, um, including hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes management. He truly is a renowned teacher and is extremely generous with his time presenting here on the local and regional level and right on up to the national level and will be presenting at National ACP later this spring. Dr. Mankin, many of you know, is a trivia guru. He competes locally and has been kind in hosting the Oregon chapter of ACP Trivia Night at our meeting uh, every year, several years running. So Dr. Mankin, always fun. Thank you for joining us again today. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for the invitation. It's always uh, great to be amongst you folks. And uh, hopefully I can uh, uh, pass on something that I've learned over the last year in regards to outpatient medicine. And so without further ado, uh, they ask for disclosures. And so, All right, glad I got that off my chest. Stephen, uh, enter in the chat if you're out there. All right, objectives today, I wanna review recent literature on relevant IM topics, and uh, I'll use cases to, uh, to present some ideas. I'm gonna avoid any mention of COVID-19. I'm gonna try and keep you guys awake, and I'm gonna try to avoid information overload. I don't wanna flood you. All right, so our schedule today, we've got uh, not too bad a clinic day. We're gonna see a new patient for gyne screening. We're gonna follow up a patient who was HPV positive on a screen. We've got a physical, we've got somebody coming in with palpitations, uh, new heart failure and some hypertension diabetes. We'll find out what all this is about. So our first patient is a 21-year-old woman who presents the clinic for her first gyne exam. She says she's sexually active for the last couple of years, uses barrier protection uh, along with OCPs. She's currently asymptomatic. She uh, has not received her HPV vaccination due to her uh, parents' hesitancy. And so talking briefly, uh, reviewing cervical cancer. So cervical cancer affects almost 15,000 women every year in the United States. And uh, there are approximately 4,000 deaths every year from cervical cancer. Cervical cancer uh, disproportionately affects the world's uh, world women's uh, health in the sense that it's the number four cause of death overall for women uh, across the globe. And that primarily occurs in low and middle income countries where they don't have uh, adequate screening. Almost 100% of cervical cancer comes about 
from a prior infection uh, from HPV uh, strains. In the United States, uh, most cancer occurs in women who have not had the opportunity or have not taken the opportunity to undergo screening or who do not follow up on abnormal results. And unfortunately, this disproportionately affects uh, immigrants, people of color, and people of uh, low income. So cervical cancer is very interesting. It was the number one cause of cancer death amongst women in the United States in the uh, mid-1900s up until the 1950s when screening programs were instituted uh, under the uh, uh, or, or under the uh, leadership of Dr. George Papanicolo, uh, who uh, really made a difference in this world. And so uh, how do we honor uh, Dr. Papanicolo, one of the most prestigious scientists of the last century? Well, of course, we, we name a very uncomfortable uh, test after him. And then um, his native country, Greece, honored him with the now defunct 10,000 drachma note and of course, in the United States, we remember him well with the uh, 13 cent uh, US stamp. All right, he uh, definitely deserves better. So here's cervical cancer over the years. So this is for, since 1975, you can see a uh, slow steady decline in the number of cases of cervical cancer and also the death rates of cervical cancer. And recall that uh, in 2006, we instituted an HPV vaccination program. And hopefully we will see some uh, effects of that come right about now, uh, about 15 years or so out from vaccination is where we expect to start seeing trends uh, decreasing, hopefully, in cervical cancer incidence and mortality. Cervical cancer is the ideal cancer for screening because it has a really long uh, lead time and so uh, patients spend a long time in a localized phase before the cancer then uh, spreads regionally and, and uh, far away. And if you can catch it localized, you have a really high chance of cure. All right, so hopefully that was all pretty much review for you guys. And so now anything new in the world of cervical cancer prevention. So in July of 2020, the American Cancer Society updated their screening guidelines for cervical cancer. There was a lot going on in the uh, world at that time, and I think these kind of went under the radar for a lot of folks. So let's review uh, current guidelines. So uh, the 2018 USPSTF uh, guidelines uh, is what most of us have been following. So between ages 21 and 29, you do a pap smear every three years. Between 30 and 65, they recommend either HPV uh, alone, so primary HPV testing every five years, or a combination HPV and PAP every five years, or you could do the PAP cytology every three years. And then at around 65, if you've had a couple of negative tests in the last 10 years, they recommend no further uh, screening. So what about this 2020 uh, ACS guideline? How does it differ? Well, the first and uh, first big difference is they don't recommend screening women in the 21 to 24 age range. So they want screening to start at age 25. 
And then they say from age 25 to 65, they want us to do primary HPV testing alone every five years with options for PAP or co-testing if for some reason primary HPV is not available. And then ending at the same age of about 65. So a little bit of a departure from our standard screening. So let's talk about uh, why they've made these choices. So why start at age 25? So though, <clears throat> although rates of HPV infection are quite high in uh, young women, most of those infections self-resolve, as do the, uh, the uh, histologic changes that occur in the cervix during that time. Overall, less than 1% of cervical cancers arise before age 25, and it's not believed that doing uh, our screening actually will prevent these cancers or cancer deaths from that. Um, but it certainly increases the screening burden, uh, the discomfort, the false positives that occur during that time, uh, overtreatment, which can lead to obstetric complications, and then of course, anxiety and costs that go along with uh, these procedures. So why did they choose HPV over cytology? So primary HPV testing every five years turns out to be more sensitive for dysplasia, and it has a, long, a better long-term negative predictive value. So you can actually get a negative HPV test and rest assured that you can go five years between your screening exams. And then as we've been vaccinating people, there are more non-important HPV strains that are infecting women's uh, cervix, cervixes. And so uh, those strains do not increase the cancer risk and only increase our chances of having false positive cytology results. So the recommendation is HPV alone. So HPV testing is good. Wouldn't it be better to do both together? So it turns out that primary HPV testing has nearly equivalent sensitivity to the combined testing, but has improved specificity over that combined testing. So you're gonna get less false positives. And a single test is more cost-effective than doing the, the dual. So if primary HPV testing is superior, then why did the ACS even mention the options for PAP and co-testing? And the reason for that was a practical one. There are only two primary HPV tests out there on the market. The primary HPV test is actually different from the test that they use when you do a reflex HPV test. So these primary HPV tests are only available in about 40% of laboratories in the United, uh, United States currently, and mainly, mainly in, in uh, major city centers. And so the ACS said once primary HPV testing is available universally across the country, they're going to get rid of uh, any recommendations for using cytology uh, for any reason. Here's an estimate of benefits and risks between the two uh, types of screening programs. So the top one being the uh, new ACS model and the, uh, the middle one representing the uh, recommendations. And so for the ACS, you see that there are uh, equivalent numbers of cancer deaths uh, uh, as compared to the, uh, what we've been doing traditionally. 
and obviously a huge uh, decrease compared to no screening whatsoever. But uh, what we do is we cut down the number of lifetime annual and uh, lifetime pelvic exams without significantly increasing the number of lifetime colposcopies. Can we further reduce our reliance on the pelvic exam for cervical cancer screening? So obviously not something that women look forward to. Is there a way to further cut down on the numbers of these examinations? And so along comes the idea of self-screening for HPV. So for women who lack access to healthcare or who are unwilling to undergo a pelvic exam, they can self-swab for HPV using different techniques. And this may offer an alternative method to uh, pelvic exams and uh, physician collected samples. Are these self screens accurate? So it looks like they're incredibly accurate. So this was a meta-analysis of 25 trials showing excellent accuracy uh, for uh, advanced cervical dysplasia using HPV PCR from vaginal self-collected samples. And so uh, women are able to basically do this test on their own. I envision a day where similar to people doing uh, fit testing for colon cancer, we will send women home potentially with a self-swab that they send into the lab. So clinical bottom line for screening, HPV testing alone is more effective than uh, cytology and more efficient than co-testing. Initiating cervical cancer screening starting at age 25 with HPV testing every five years until age 65 appears to be a reasonable approach for cervical cancer screening. And HPV self-screening may be a viable option especially in the underscreened populations that we that I mentioned earlier uh, in the talk, uh, the, uh, the uh, disenfranchised within our society would have a lot better opportunities to get screened uh, and reduce their rates of cervical cancer. So her parents didn't allow her to get her HPV vaccinations. She's now 21. Should we recommend that she get them at her age? So HPV vaccination targets uh, a lot of the high-risk HPV strains out there responsible for roughly 90% of cervical cancers. It was first uh, recommended officially in 2006 for ages 9 to 26, and we now recommend it up to age 45 in both uh, women and men. HPV vaccination, uh, of course, reduces HPV infections. It also reduces genital warts and high-grade cervical uh, lesions, the CIN twos and threes of the world. How are we doing at this point at getting young women vaccinated in the United States? So we're doing eh, meh, about half of the teens in the United States and half of uh, girls up to age 24, or women up to age 24 are up to date uh, or fully vaccinated uh, for HPV. So we're not quite there, but uh, making headway. A super important question is, does HPV vaccination actually prevent what, we're, what, what it's intended for, invasive cervical cancer? So 
it's somewhat difficult to assess from the uh, randomized trial data from the initial uh, groups uh, because there's a long lead time before cancers actually develop. But we do have some data from the initial group. <clears throat> We've got 27,000 women from early randomized trials. They were followed for seven years total. And in the group who received vaccinations, none of them developed uh, an HPV-related HPV cancer as uh, compared to 10 women in the placebo uh, arm. So not, I mean, encouraging data, but obviously not enough to really hang our hats on. Um, what I thought was uh, a lot more interesting was this study out of Sweden in which they looked at one point, almost 1.7 million uh, girls and women uh, who were followed from 2006 to 2017, uh, getting uh, HPV vaccination. And uh, they compared them to uh, groups not getting vaccinated. And here's what they found, that for unvaccinated, uh, there was a uh, significantly higher uh, incidence of cervical cancer versus the vaccinated group. Only 19 women out of half a million developed invasive cervical cancer. And looking at that 19, it's interesting that if those women were vaccinated before age 17, that only accounted for two cancers. So two cervical cancers out of 440,000 women, uh, and then the rest, although they had lower rates, they overall had a higher, a higher chance of getting cervical cancer if they received their vaccines after age 17. So clinical bottom line here, this woman should receive her vaccination. HPV vaccinations appear to be an effective means for reducing the burden of cervical cancer. And especially if you can get them young, especially if you can get them before they've been uh, introduced to the HPV virus. Uh, uh, or, uh, so if trends continue like this, uh, future, future screening protocols should reflect whether or not women have received the vaccination. Uh, so I think this is what's coming down the pike. And there are a lot of models out there, uh, one from Norway, in which they suggest that uh, we may be down to just two HPV screens in a lifetime if someone has been vaccinated. So uh, we're gonna see, I think, huge changes. And it also makes me wonder, what will women go to the doctor for? Uh, I say that sort of, you know, half-heartedly uh, uh, as a joke, but truly that's what brings young women into healthcare. And this may actually change, uh, change what healthcare looks like quite a lot if they no longer need to come in so regularly for screening at young ages. All right. Our next patient is a 32-year-old woman who uh, comes in after her HPV test uh, turned positive on her routine screening. So what do you do when women have a positive HPV test? Well, traditionally, we need to figure out if uh, they have a high-risk uh, lesion, which would require colposcopy, a, a definitive treatment, versus a low-risk kind of lesion that can return to normal or routine screening. And what we uh, normally do is we obtain a pap smear at that point, 
and uh, see what things look like. Anything new in this world? And I just wanted to mention to you a new test that's out. This is called dual stain testing. Dual stain testing employs molecular markers, uh, these two specific ones that are found in cancer-causing strains of HPV, and they're highly predictive of cancer formation. And so uh, in a study looking at uh, women who tested HPV, high-risk HPV positive, uh, 1,500 of them, use of dual stain was superior to PAP, to uh, cytology, in predicting development of CIN2 lesions or greater over a five-year period. A separate study uh, used dual stain plus artificial intelligence where the computers were actually reading the slides rather than humans. And they found in a study of 4,200 women who were HPV positive, um, that use of this artificial intelligence uh, dual stain resulted in improved specificity for detection of cervical precancers, the CIN2s and 3s, and overall referral for colposcopy was appropriately reduced by about a third using the dual stain test. Here's what a dual stain test might look like, and the computer has been trained to recognize these cells in the center as being abnormal, and it will flag that particular uh, slide. So clinical bottom line, this is just a quick hit case. Dual stain testing, be on the lookout for that for women who are HPV positive as a uh, more accurate means than cytology for determining if a woman needs to go on to a procedure. And uh, AI technology may further improve the accuracy of this dual stain testing. And uh, just wanna do one more shout out to Dr. George Papanicolou. We may be seeing the end of the era of the pap smear, but uh, he certainly will not be forgotten. This patient is a 46-year-old healthy woman who prevents her follow-up. She's up-to-date on her cervical cancer screening. Oh, thank goodness. Don't want to talk about that anymore. And she's opted to start mammography at age 50, so she's not quite ready there, ready yet. Any other screening tests that you would suggest? And so this is just a reminder that there have been a couple updates. Hepatitis C is one. Hepatitis C is currently the most common bloodborne pathogen. It affects about 1% of the US population. There's about 45,000 new cases diagnosed every year. And this number has been uh, increasing at an alarming rate, about fourfold increase since 2010. It accounts for more death, uh, hepatitis C, than the top 60 other reportable infectious diseases, including HIV. Updated their recommendations in 2020, recommending that we now screen all adults ages 18 to 79 years with an anti-hep C virus antibody. And then they recommend repeat screening in anyone who's at a particularly high risk, mainly people who inject drugs, although they don't recommend how often we test those folks. Screening ages 18 to 79 
uh, will apparently result in identification of about a quarter million new cases of, of hepatitis C that are currently unrecognized and will hopefully prevent over 4,000 cases of hepatocellular cancer. The other cancer that I think you guys are uh, probably well aware of is colorectal cancer. We've had some changes there as well. CRC is the third most commonly diagnosed cancer, the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States for women and men combined, and uh, estimated totals, 104,000 cancers are diagnosed each year in the United States, um, including uh, 45,000 uh, rectal cancers, or not including, but, and, and uh, there are 45,000 new rectal cancers with a total of about a third of those, uh, uh, a third of that number uh, dying from colorectal cancers. The trends have shown overall declining rates since the 1980s, since we instituted screening programs. And most of those declines in the past decade have involved older cohorts of patients. However, from 2012 to 2016, colorectal cancer uh, increased by 2% per year in people under age 50 and by 1% per year in the 50 to 64 category. And so the need to do something a little bit more has uh, uh, surfaced. And so the USPSTF now recommends that we traditionally, as traditionally, uh, screen people aged 50 to 75, but also with a grade B recommendation, start screening people in the 45 to 49 year age group. And then uh, consideration uh, of colorectal screening should still be given for uh, adults aged 76 to 85 if they're otherwise in pretty good health. So clinical bottom lines here, these are just really quick reminders that uh, like HIV, there's now a recommendation out there to screen all adults for hepatitis C, uh, not just the baby boomers, and CRC screening may be initiated starting at age 45. All right, moving on to our next patient. I think we're keeping on time. We've got a 55-year-old man who comes in for some intermittent palpitations. He received a notification from his Apple Watch, which he probably got on his birthday. And the Apple Watch said, hey, something appears to be wrong with your heart rhythm. Great, people coming into the doctor now because their smart devices are telling them to. Is this something we should be taking seriously? So let's talk about this. The uh, Apple watchmakers uh, instituted a very large study. And so um, Apple watch wearers were monitored using their watches with their permission for irregular pulse. Participants were then notified of an irregular heartbeat and they were sent an EKG monitoring patch to be worn for up to, to a week. And then they wanted to know what proportion of these notified participants actually uh, were confirmed to have AFib on an EKG over the course of a week. The uh, data was uh, collected via Apple 
and then it was immediately turned over to researchers at Stanford. So the Apple folks did not have anything to do with uh, the actual uh, uh, data analysis. And what, uh, how did this all shake out? So they actually looked at 430,000 Apple Watch wearers who did not have AFib at baseline. They monitored them for about four months total. Of those folks, 2,100 or so were notified of having an irregular rhythm, and they were sent to what's called an EKG patch where their watch will now uh, observe for abnormal rhythms, and when those occur, it will, uh, it will uh, generate an EKG. Of those uh, 2,100, 450 took their EKG uh, patch and used it and returned their data. The 450 people with EKG data showed that AFib was documented in 119 of them, uh, meaning a 34% sensitivity. Frequent PACs, PVCs, atrial tachycardia, and non-sustained VTAC were diagnosed in 40%. The fact that AFib was diagnosed in 34% doesn't mean that the other 66% didn't have run a, a run of AFib initially. It meant that over the course of their EKG monitoring, it didn't show up. But remember that AFib is oftentimes paroxysmal. So those numbers could actually be higher. So there are some newer versions now of the Apple Watch uh, that now include an automatic EKG. The patch that was used in the initial uh, study is now just an automatic for Apple Watches, I believe level six and above. And uh, it, uh, according to the manufacturer, uh, is able to detect AFib with a 98% sensitivity and close to 100% specificity. There's now uh, Apple Watch Series 6 and above that are also offering oxygen saturation monitoring using the same plethysmography technique. And so uh, while it's not approved for medical use yet, this is something that potentially could be coming down the pike. So I was thinking about these Apple Watches and how they might change what we do. And so here are the things that just off the top of my head I was thinking about for potential applications. Uh, we talk about cryptogenic stroke and uh, the study that showed that a lot of people who have stroke or TIAs actually have underlying AFib if you monitor them for long enough. And so could we use Apple Watches for that purpose? People who undergo cardiac procedures, we oftentimes monitor them for extensive periods after the procedure and we'd love to know what things look like when they go home. These Apple Watches would be an ideal kind of thing for discharge. Workup of palpitations and syncope. Uh, we no longer have to uh, wonder about using these event monitors, et cetera, which can be costly. Exercise monitoring. We can have uh, more extensive cardiac rehab classes where people are wearing their Apple Watches to monitor their heart and how they're doing. We could use this for drug monitoring, for QT intervals, especially on patients uh, who are on multiple QT altering medications. 
And then this may come down to screening. So should we screen the older population for atrial fibrillation, especially high risk folks? Um, so those are all just off the top of my head, things where I can see these really coming to play probably in the next five to 10 years. And these Apple watches, you know, are becoming less and less uh, expensive. And uh, I think cheaper versions will also be available uh, through other, you know, competitors to, you know, th these things might eventually be in the Happy Meals that our kids are getting. Uh, hopefully you're not feeding your kids Happy Meals. But uh, you get my point that these, uh, this technology is becoming less and less expensive and more accessible to the general population. All right, so my clinical bottom line here, smart devices are capable of identifying unrecognized atrial fibrillation, as well as potentially other important arrhythmias. Stay tuned. This is one of my favorite camping trips with my daughter. This was during the early stages of COVID where they shut down all the forests and we went anyway and we had this beautiful Lake Olali all to ourselves. All right, this is our next patient, patient five, 72-year-old woman who comes in for follow-up after hospitalization for acute onset heart failure. She was diuresed and sent home on PO furosemide. Her echo uh, revealed an EF of 60 to 70%. So she has HEF-PEF. HEF-PEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, is uh, accounts for roughly half of folks who uh, get hospitalized for heart failure. And overall, we've seen no reduction in heart failure hospitalization or mortality in patients with HEF-PEF using traditional agents that we usually use for patients with HEF-REF, such as ACE inhibitors, ARBs, beta blockers, spironolactone, the uh, Secubitrol, Valsartan uh, combinations, et cetera. And so uh, what about HEF-PEF? Is there anything new in this world? So let's talk about a diabetes medicine. So uh, this is probably very familiar to you guys, the SGLT2 inhibitors are the newest class of medications being used for diabetes and also now used for heart failure. So the SGLT2 inhibitors are the ones that block your glucose reabsorption in your proximal tubule of your kidney. And so you pee out the glucose, water follows, it has diuretic effects, it lowers blood pressure, it lowers sugar, and uh, it's been shown to be helpful at reducing heart failure events in patients with diabetes with or without baseline heart failure. So it appears to reduce heart failure in all diabetes patients. And it improves heart failure now in patients with HEF-REF, the reduced EF heart failure. So these appear to be pretty miraculous medicines. They're really helping a lot of folks. Do these medicines help people with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction? And so this study came out last year in New England Journal. It was called the Emperor Preserved Trial. They looked at 6,000 patients with HEF-PEF. All of them had an EF greater than 40%. Two thirds of the folks had an EF greater than 
with an average EF of 54%. These folks were randomized to receive empagliflozin, 10 milligrams daily, or placebo. They were followed for two years to look at the outcomes of heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death uh, or the combined outcome. Average age of the folks was 74. And let's see what happened. So as you can see here, the primary outcome combined heart failure hospitalization uh, or cardiovascular mortality was significantly reduced in the empagliflozin group uh, with uh, uh, very significant p-value. Most of the difference was seen in the CHF hospitalizations uh, with uh, quite a reduction in number of heart failure hospitalizations. There was a trend towards decreased cardiovascular mortality, but that was not significant. Empagliflozin uh, is uh, an expensive drug at this time. So that's one of uh, the main downsides. There are other side effects to the medication, but I think this is the biggest one that's preventing our general use. What I wonder is how much would it cost to prevent one primary event in the study, um, a single heart failure event over a one-year period, and that cost is roughly $1 million to prevent a single heart failure event. So I think that kind of brings it to light just how expensive it would be to try and institute this widely amongst people with HEFPEF. Um, I also think about it in slightly other, slightly different terms. So empagliflozin costs $588 per month. And I wonder if you offer to patients some alternative, say an Alfa Romeo Giulia, a very nice car. They could lease that over a 36 month period for a brand new car for just less than it would cost to take the empagliflozin. Or as an alternative, if you're a traveler, you could get a beachfront villa in the Canary Islands, you'd have to pay $511 per month over the course of just one year to get a rental for four people in the Mediterranean. Of course, that does not include airfare or food. Let's not get greedy. All right, so to review those choices, you can go on Empagliflozin. You could get an Alfa Romeo, very nice looking car, or you could be holed up here in June with three of your closest friends for an entire month. Okay, so empagliflozin is the first drug to lower risk of heart failure hospitalizations in patients with HEFPATH. I'm excited that we have a treatment that's helpful for these patients, and I'm also hopeful that these drugs will become more affordable with time. We're on to patient six. We have a 54-year-old man with history of obesity, hypertension, and elevated A1C. He comes in for uh, standard follow-up. His BP is 148 over 88. His A1C is 6.0%. And you've tried everything. You've, you've given him all kinds of advice on diet, exercise, and weight loss, and yet his numbers continue to climb. And he asks, well, what can I do to lose weight? What works? So if you look at this patient, he's, a, he's classified as having prediabetes, if we're still using that term. 
got elevated A1C. The American Diabetes Association recommends that to prevent him going on to diabetes, that he undergo 150 minutes of exercise per week in order to achieve a 7% reduction in body weight using combination of exercise and diet. The uh, DPP study showed that intensive lifestyle changes like that resulted in a 58% reduction in development of diabetes over a three-year period, which was superior to metformin. Um, so yeah, all good things, diet and exercise, we tell that to all our patients. Anything new out there for weight loss, anything we should really have our eye on. So let's talk about another diabetes agent uh, that I am falling in love with. These are the glucagon-like peptide one agonists um, listed here. They lower A1C by about a point. They have been shown to decrease cardiovascular events in patients with diabetes and uh, ASCVD, so cardiovascular disease, so secondary prevention. And they have been shown to decrease progression of kidney disease in folks with diabetes. So all great things from these GLP-1 agonists. What about the GLP-1 agonists and weight loss? So in the early, uh, so, so looking at these uh, agents, they appear to have good reason to help people lose weight. They slow gastric emptying and create a sense of early satiety when eating meals. And they have a direct effect on the brain uh, limiting our appetite. In the early studies of patients of these GLP-1 agonists in diabetes, use of liraglutide resulted in a net 4.2 kilogram weight loss as compared to placebo over the course of a year. And when they looked at semaglutide in diabetes, they found a 6.2 net uh, loss compared to placebo uh, with uh, these agents. What about using these agents in people who don't even have diabetes? Does that help? So here was an initial study of this uh, proof of concept in New England in 2015 using liraglutide in 3,700 obese adults who did not have diabetes they got daily injections of liraglutide and were compared to patients with placebo. At a baseline, they weighed about 100 kilos and their A1C was borderline uh, at 5.6. These folks were followed for a year, looking at changes in body weight and figuring out if people lost greater than 5% or greater than 10% overall body weight. And what did they see? Well, they saw a uh, significant reduction in weight uh, using liraglutide, 18 pounds over the course of a year, which was 8% uh, overall body weight change in this population. Roughly two thirds of these folks achieved a greater than 5% weight loss, and a third lost greater than 10% of their body weight. Their blood pressures came down and their A1C, remember these were non-diabetics, their A1Cs did not change significantly uh, overall. I mean, it was a, a, a difference, but it was not an important difference. There were no cases of hypoglycemia going on in patients 
on the loraglutide. Were there adverse effects? Oh yeah, there were a lot of adverse effects. Uh, four times the number of patients had vomiting, lots of patients complained of nausea, diarrhea, constipation, uh, dyspepsia. So a lot of events. However, only 6% of the uh, group actually stopped their medication due to one of these adverse events. So I think people realized, hey, I'm losing weight on this product. Yeah, maybe I feel a little queasy, but I'm gonna keep going. Here's a separate study uh, published uh, last year in New England. This looked at 195 uh, obese patients without diabetes once again. They were placed on low calorie uh, diet for the first eight weeks. You can see there that they lost 14 kilograms of weight uh, on this very drastic diet. And then the question was, can people keep off this weight if we employ exercise or exercise or semaglutide or exercise plus semaglutide. And what they found was that the, uh, I'm sorry, liraglutide. Uh, what they found was the exercise plus liraglutide group continued to drop their weight and were able to maintain very well over the course of a one-year study. So these people lost a tremendous amount of weight and were able to keep that off with combination of exercise and liraglutide, and liraglutide itself was quite uh, impressive alone. So here's another study. This uh, uh, was a very interesting one last year that came out in New England. About 2,000 obese non-diabetic patients, once again, were randomized to weekly semaglutide, so that's nicer, uh, plus lifestyle counseling, and they compared them to counseling alone. They again weighed about 100 kilos at baseline. Their A1C was borderline elevated. They followed these people for just over a year with the same kind of endpoints of percent change in body weight and did they lose greater than 5% body weight. So what happened in these people who were using weekly injections with semaglutide? How much weight did they lose? Uh, did they lose none at all? They actually gained weight in the study or did they lose as much as 15 kilos? So I'm very happy to report that these people lost 15 kilograms of weight over the course of a year, uh, which represented about a 15% drop overall in their body weight. 86% met the goal of greater than 5% weight loss, and over two thirds of people had greater than 10% weight loss which is enormous. Their blood pressures came down impressively and their A1Cs dropped into the normal range. Wow, this gets my vote for study of the year. Were there adverse events? Yes, very similar to what we saw in the liraglutide study. Lots of people getting nausea and vomiting, uh, some diarrhea and constipation. And once again, only one out of about 13 people said, okay, I can't take it, I'm not using this medicine. Everyone else said, bring it on, I'll keep going. On June 4th of last year, the FDA approved use of injectable semaglutide for chronic weight management based on this study. In adults with obesity or in overweight adults, BMI is greater than 27 with at least one weight-related comorbidity. 
What about in adolescence? Any evidence there? So I wanted to point out the study where they took liraglutide in 251 adolescents. Once again, overweight or, or I'm sorry, obese adolescents without diabetes. They assigned them to daily injections with liraglutide. Their baseline weight was again 100 kilos. They studied these people over a year and they were all provided lifestyle uh, measures. And these people, these young uh, individuals, lost about uh, just over two kilos of weight uh, compared to placebo where they gained just over two kilos of weight. About a quarter of them lost greater than 10% of their body weight. There were again increased GI adverse events. About two thirds of these adolescents complained of the various GI uh, uh, troubles that we talked about earlier, but only one in 10 of them said, I'm not gonna use these, these uh, weekly injection, or daily injections, sorry, for, uh, for weight loss, uh, which is astounding to me. I can't get my teenager to take out the trash once a week. And here are these adolescents being injected daily and being subjected to all these GI side effects and they're sticking with it. So kudos to them. All right. In 2019, the FDA approved oral semaglutide, the first oral agent within the GLP-1 class. Does the oral one help, help with weight loss? So here's a study of oral semaglutide in 3,100 diabetic patients. Uh, they compared them to placebo. They followed these folks for 16 months. They, uh, one of their secondary outcomes was weight change. And patients on semaglutide lost an average of Oral semaglutide lost an average of four kilo, kilograms of weight as compared to 0.8 kilos with placebo. All right, as uh, discussed earlier, there's always downsides aside from just the adverse events in these studies. And the main downsides are the cost of these medications. Holy cow, these are expensive drugs. Uh, I looked at it in terms of how much price is it per pound of weight loss? And you can see there, it ain't cheap. Uh, however, the once weekly semaglutide uh, subcutaneous was uh, $433 per pound of weight loss. Eh, doing the math, I would probably sign up for, uh, for uh, a little bit of this medication. All right. Lastly, I wanna end with a, a question, any new devices for weight loss, anything out there? And so I found uh, a very interesting FDA uh, uh, cleared product called Plendity or Gelesis uh, 100. This is a novel oral super absorbent hydrogel. It's a mixture of cellulose, citric acid. It forms this network and uh, you take it within a capsule form. The capsule gets into your stomach, breaks open, and then uh, it absorbs 100 times, these, these particles absorb 100 times their weight in water, and it occupies volume and induces satiety. It forms a semi-solid gel uh, that occupies roughly a quarter of the volume of one's stomach. You take it about 20 minutes before each meal, and uh, 
the water, the uh, once the uh, once the meal passes through into the intestines, esterases within the intestines will break down the polymer. The water then gets absorbed or reabsorbed into the colon, and the remaining small amount of hydrogel is then expelled in the feces. So this is called plenity. It was FDA cleared in April 2019 as a device for people with BMI greater than 25. Why was it called a device? It was called a device because it never actually gets absorbed in your body, so it's not considered to be a drug. Here's what this super absorbent gel looks like uh, uh, in vitro. When uh, gastric fluid, simulated gastric fluid is added to it, it just forms this huge gel uh, uh, that uh, will occupy your stomach. Any studies? Well, there was a, a study uh, uh, published in obesity called the GLOW study. They looked at 436 subjects aged 22 to 65 and uh, BMI greater than 27 to 40. And they compared plenty to placebo and they looked at the same outcomes we've been looking at thus far. They followed these people for uh, 24 weeks, about six months, and they found that people on Plenity lost significant weight compared to placebo, which did pretty well too. Uh, about 60% of people lost greater than 5% of their body weight, and a quarter of folks lost 10% of their body weight. There were some GI adverse events, um, but overall they were pretty minimal and withdrawal uh, was the same as that with placebo. Here was an extension study of the GLOW trial looking at weight loss and then maintenance for another six months out to one year, and they found that people were able to lose weight and then maintain it if they stayed on the, uh, on the plenity. Cost of plenity, uh, are uh, quite reasonable, I think, compared to a lot of the drugs we've been talking about. The, uh, the uh, product costs $98 per month, which uh, represents about just under $2 per meal. Uh, you have to do an online program and uh, it may be covered by insurance according to the company website. All right, my clinical bottom lines here, GLP-1 agonists, are effective agents for weight loss in patients over age 12 with or without diabetes for up to one year. Plenity is a new device for weight loss and appears to be safe and effective in a single randomized trial of short duration. We need some more studies. Obesity is a chronic disease. We don't treat hypertension for a year and then quit. And I think we should be thinking the same about obesity with all its comorbidities. And then finally, the question I ask you is, what did I hand out this past Halloween uh, to kids to help combat childhood obesity? And my answer to that. All right. So thanks for your kind attention. Uh, we've got a few minutes for questions and uh, hopefully something came across that will help you in your practice. Great. Many, many thanks, Dr. Mencken, for an excellent presentation and perhaps just dovetailing on uh, one of those last points. I have a question here from the audience. Do we have a sense with GLP-1 agonists, if discontinued after a year, does the weight return? We don't know that yet. I haven't seen any studies looking at 
the after effects once we stop the medication. Again, you know, this is one of those questions of do we treat obesity as a chronic disease? That's my overall bent is we probably should, uh, especially if these medications become affordable. It seems like it only would help these folks. The side effects tend to decrease over time. And, uh, you know, that's one of those things that uh, we have yet to see. So stay tuned. Thank you. And I'll back us up a little bit to the section on the Apple devices. Um, do we know the stroke risk and thus the risk benefit ratio for anticoagulation for patients found to have paroxysmal AF uh, on the Apple Watch? Um, so any data about uh, prevention of clinically important outcomes, I believe is yeah, the question. I, I think that's a great question. So does picking up AFib really help us out if it's in a 40-year-old healthy person? Uh, it probably doesn't help a whole lot. The recommendations still are to monitor those folks, to not use any kind of uh, antiplatelets or other uh, blood thinning agents. However, in people with high enough risks, just like anyone else that we'd risk stratify with a CHADS risk score, um, potentially they could gain benefit. There haven't been studies looking specifically at the folks detected with their Apple Watch as to whether or not they gain benefit. They did break it down. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think it was, the, uh, I, I don't want to say the wrong numbers, but they broke it down by age uh, according to how many people were detected with AFib. I think it was, I remember roughly it was about a quarter of patients were over age 65 because not that many older patients wear Apple Watches at this point, I think. Um, so yeah, that's a good question. I think it's important information to know, and I see no difference, you know, at least in folks who have had some kind of event, it would be really important to know. Great, thanks. You can get the data and, and interpret, perhaps an opportunity for shared decision-making. Absolutely. Um, we're nearly at the top of the hour, but I'll sneak in one more um, perhaps quick question. Um, are you aware whether most insurances are covering the cost of colorectal cancer screening beginning at age 45? So my understanding, and I'm not great with all this insurance stuff, but I believe that once the USPSTF gives a grade B or higher, then insurance companies are required to cover that service and they're given one year from the time of the official uh, recommendation in order to figure that out and then start providing coverage. So in theory, if, if all goes well and, and appropriate with the law, the insurance company should be covering our patients age 45 and above. Great, thanks so much. Um, that has been my experience as well. Uh, I wanna respect that we are at nine o'clock um, and have learned much. So many thanks, Dr. Menken. You're very welcome. I hope I helped in some small way. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. Any comments or questions, please uh, shoot me an email. That, that would be great. Perfect. We'll see you next week. Thanks, audience. Thank you, Laura.